0: The word dramaturgy is unusual enough that my phone's autocorrect function changes it to dramaturgy. Even for theater makers, the concept is nebulous enough to prompt articles about it in major newspapers with headlines like, What the Bleep is a dramaturg?" In my dramaturgy classroom, I aim to demystify dramaturgy as an art form by recognizing that, as scholars and theater makers, we all already commit acts of dramaturgy regularly and enthusiastically. In my books, dramaturgy is an act of creation, and more of a mindset than a set of rules, regulations, and duties. I'm Professor Molly Seremet, and it's such a thrill to welcome you back for season two of *Writ in the Margins, a podcast that harnesses dramaturgical thinking as a performative act of creation. This podcast was conceptualized, researched, written, produced, and realized by the graduate students in the Shakespeare and Performance program at Mary Baldwin University. For season two, we are bringing you 13 episodes that unpack, investigate, reimagine, and sometimes even push against five wildly different plays. El Muerto Disimulado or Presumed Dead, by Angela de Azevedo. The Antipodes, by Richard Broome. The Island Princess, by John Fletcher. Loa to the Divine Narcissus, by Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz and Life is a Dream by Pedro Calderon de la Barca. These plays sit alongside Shakespeare in the universe of early modern drama, but each has its own unique terrain and orbit. And each episode offers a close look at key features of the landscape from a dramaturgical perspective. In their research, students have deployed tools of structural analysis, contextual synthesis, and creative intervention, and have intermingled their research with performed scenes, original music, and special features galore. Feel free to listen to the episodes in this season in any order. I hope you'll also go back and revisit season one as well. Do visit our website for show notes, transcripts, and bibliographic materials. We appreciate the support of Mary Bolton University's Shakespeare and Performance program in this endeavor. Now that's enough for me. On to your episode of Writ in the Margins.
1: Hello, and welcome to Writ in the Margins, a Mary Baldwin University Shakespeare and Performance dramaturgical podcast. We're your hosts, Madison Rudolph and Kara Hankard.
2: And we're here to share with you our dramaturgical curiosities in our episode of Writ in the
3: Margins.
1: Writ in the Margins is a podcast created by Mary Baldwin University Shakespeare and Performance graduate students to share other early modern plays written by other playwrights.
2: We don't only love Shakespeare
1: (laughs) and to share what dramaturgical questions this play excites in us.
2: In the hopes that these questions will excite your curiosities too. We hope to
1: inspire you to read the play, see
2: it performed, and possibly even produce it yourself.
1: There are so many perspectives to view the plays from. Your perspective matters.
2: Today we'll be looking at The Convent of Pleasure by Margaret Cavendish through feminist and queer lenses.
1: By looking at the play through these lenses, we invite perspectives from marginalized communities to have their thoughts writ in the margins.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Today, we explore the concept of identity in Margaret Cavendish's play, The Convent of Pleasure. We'll start by looking at the unique names of these characters. Much like a morality play, Cavendish names her characters based on aspects of their personality, status, or gender identity.
1: Then, we'll discuss the production history of the play and explore connections between the play text and modern elements of queer theory.
2: We'll also share with you a performance of a scene from The Convent of Pleasure, performed by the amazing Sophia Barata, Caitlin Spurgeon, and Johnny Williams III.
1: There will be spoilers in our discussion, so consider this your spoiler warning. Pause now if you would like to stop to read the play first before hearing our analysis of it. Let's get into it
2: what's in a name? Okay, I know that's from the wrong play, but it really is a great question to ask about the characters in Cavendish's The Convent of Pleasure. This play is chock full of characters with kind of a out-of-this-world metaphorical names. We've got characters with names like Madame Mediator, Lady Happy, and Monsieur Take Pleasure. The names, like morality plays, act as an indicator or description of their jobs or place within the play. Madame Mediator acts as an advisor to Lady Happy. Madame Mediator gets the convent up and running and works as a kind of go-between for the convent and the real world. I think Cavendish might have been trying to give her audience and readers clues about the characters right from the beginning. This type of naming convention can also be found in other early modern works by playwrights, such as Ben Johnson. Johnson was famous for his handling of dramatic material and was adept at creating sophisticated character names. In an article titled, Defining Society, the Function of Character Names in Ben Johnson's Early Comedies, author Mark Anderson points out that, quote, Johnson's use of names, in fact, bears a strong relationship to the hieroglyph, which for the Renaissance meant a picture with a hidden meaning," end quote. Johnson would name his characters depending on the source material of his play and what kind of message he was hoping to send his audiences. Was the play more allegorical, like a morality play, or was it a commentary on current events, typically a court-related drama? Did the playwright want the audience to relate to the characters or instead focus on the bigger picture. It appears that Cavendish borrowed some of these naming techniques for comment of pleasure. Margaret Cavendish's work was centered primarily around issues of gender, sex, marriage, and courtship. Cavendish wanted her plays to mean something and used her voice as a wronged woman to get people talking about gender inequality and the imbalance of opportunities for women. There's an expectation um, that the characters in Convent of Pleasure are either going to live up to the standard standards of their name or fall short and not achieve what their name asks them to do. It sounds like a lot of pressure to put on a character, but I actually think it's a brilliant move by Cavendish. Instead of giving her characters names like Jane or Mark or even Lady Jane or Monsieur Mark, she adds a layer to the world of Combat of Pleasure. Most of the play operates within the walls of the convent. We don't see much of the outside world. It makes sense that after a while, the constructs of the outside society start to strip down and wear away. Maybe Cavendish is alluding to the idea that we are all supposed to fit into this
1: box that society has created for us. The princess is another character whose name sparked interest for us because there are some spoilers coming up, so now's another good time to take a pause and read the play before we keep going, is that they aren't actually who they say they are. The princess is actually the prince in disguise. Dun, dun, dun! (laughs) The prince's intentions for disguise are unclear in the text. Are they trying to trick Lady Happy into marrying them, like some of the other suitors who tried and failed? or are they hoping to escape the patriarchy and expectations set for them by escaping to the convent, just like the women did? Is this a commentary on how oppressive patriarchal gender expectations hurt men too?
2: We decided to look into the production history of Convent of Pleasures to see how other shows have represented the princess on stage.
1: A show of hands out there in the podcast universe. How many of you have seen a production of The Convent of Pleasures? or maybe listened to a recording.
2: If you're out there raising
1: your hand, we'd love to meet you. Seriously though, this play is amazing, but seems to be relatively unheard of, at least in comparison to our main man himself, William Shakespeare. Okay, well, that's not fair.
2: Shakespeare has more groupies than fangirls out there. Jokes aside, Cavendish really hasn't had that many produced productions in the last few, in the last few centuries.
1: Trust us, we looked all over Google. Although, there has been a recent scholarly resurgence of Cavendish's work that we believe have led to the few staged readings we found, like the ones by the Ghostlight Ensemble Theater in Chicago, Illinois.
2: Now, there are a lot of factors here to think about. The Comet of Pleasure was originally written to be a closet drama play. A closet drama was created primarily for reading rather than for production. So when Margaret Cavendish wrote this play, she probably envisioned a group of women sitting in their drawing room with a cup of tea, reading the play amongst one another.
1: So kind of like a book club that reads the book together in real time?
2: Yes. It's a lot like stage readings, which playwrights nowadays use to workshop their material.
1: Because the play was never originally meant to be performed in full, that means there might be some challenges to the performance the playwright didn't consider. We wanted to see what would happen if the Convent of Pleasure was actually staged. Was the princess played by a man? A woman? A non-binary actor? We wanted
2: to look for variances in costuming and makeup and how directors attempted to convince the audience, as well as the other characters in the play, that the outsiders actually belonged. In a reading, we don't really have to consider bodies in space, but in a play performance, we do. How does casting change the story that the play is telling?
1: So, truthfully, this play has not been performed in full as often as we hoped. We have been able to find several companies that performed the play as a staged reading in various seasons featuring typically unproduced plays, but it was much more difficult to find a solid production history as we hoped. The Digital Cavendish Collaboration website ended up being a very interesting and helpful tool in our research.
2: The site is completely devoted to Margaret Cavendish. (laughs) It truly is a digital archive of her works and other information and resources surrounding her plays. The site includes a lot of great information from Cavendish scholars, including links to her digital texts, uh, teaching resources, and original research by the project's collaborators.
1: Madison and I were fascinated by the character of the princess and their interactions inside the convent with other characters.
2: We first hear about the princess when Madame Mediator shares the knowledge of their arrival at the convent to two women outside of the convent as a, quote, a princely, brave woman true of a masculine presence, end quote.
1: The women abruptly change the subject to discussing other enjoyments at the convent because they are jealous of single women who get to live there. The abrupt change makes me wonder what they think about Madame Mediator's statement. Do they just accept that bodies and personalities have more variety than gender norms of the time described? Do the women accept the princess's masculine presence because they are from another country?
2: Or is it just because Madame Mediator interrupted their previous, previous discussion about wanting to be in the convent, so they went back to their original topic?
1: It could also be a reference to Queen Elizabeth I. Elizabeth referred to herself with male pronouns and as princely because she wanted to highlight traits in herself that were typically associated with men, so her subjects would feel more comfortable having a female monarch. In the
2: very next scene, we see other suitors of Lady Happy's discussing the possibility of disguising themselves as women to gain entrance into the convent, but they come to the conclusion that it would be too challenging for them to make a believable disguise. This might set the audience up to trust the princess is really a woman, or it might be a setup by the playwright to put
1: that idea in the audience's head. When Lady Happy first meets the princess, she does not seem to realize that the princess might be a prince in disguise. The epilogue of the play reads, marriage is a curse we find, especially to womankind from the cobbler's wife we see to ladies they unhappy be." End quote. The last line of the epilogue referencing being unhappy seems especially pointed to Lady Happy.
2: Reexamining plays like The Convent of Pleasure in 2021 allows us the opportunity to bring different perspectives and knowledge to the conversation that might have previously been unconsidered or left out of the conversation. Feminist and gender studies are two lenses that breathe new life into Cavendish's work. Cavendish might have originally written the princess to be a male identifying person in order to further push her feminist agenda in the play.
1: Exactly. The prince is called the princess up until the last three to four pages of the play, so most of the play features a same-sex relationship. The ending is heteronormative, but it is such a small percentage of the play that it makes one wonder if it was put on at the end. Gender is a spectrum, so it is fair to argue that the princess might not actually be the straight male-identifying person Cavendish's script alludes to. Could the princess be a non-binary-identifying person? A trans woman? These are some of the questions we ask in order to explain the apparent successful disguise of the prince-princess.
2: We could probably spend hours discussing the the many different variations and possibilities of gender identity and expression of the princess, and how this impacts their relationship with Lady Happy. But we only have 20 minutes here, so let's (laughs) jump into our first scene study. We'll be looking at at a selection from Act 3, Scene 1. We have Caitlin Spurgeon, a female identifying actor, reading for the princess, and Sophia Barata, reading for Lady Happy.
1: Take a listen, and we'll be back to continue our discussion.
4: Madam, your highness does me much honor to come from a splendid court to a retired convent.
3: Sweet Lady Happy, there are many that have quit their crowns and power for a cloister of restraint. Then well may I quit a court of troubles for a convent of pleasure. But the greatest pleasure I could receive were to have your friendship.
4: I should be ungrateful. Should I not be not only your friend, but a humble servant?
3: I desire you would be my mistress, and I your servant. And upon this agreement of friendship, I desire you will grant me one requests? Anything.
4: That is in my power to grant.
3: Why then, I, observing in your several recreations, some of your ladies do accoster themselves in masculine habits and act lovers' parts, I desire you will give me leave to be sometimes so accostered and act the part of your loving servant.
4: I shall never desire to have any other loving servant than yourself. Nor
3: I any other loving mistress than yourself.
4: More innocent lovers never can there be than my most princely lover.
3: <laughs> That's a she. Nor never convent did such pleasures give where lovers with their mistress may live.
1: That was great! What are some takeaways from this first read-through?
2: Well, I think first of all, we have to remember that we are listening to this with our 2021 perspectives and understandings. We now know that gender is a construct. Right, of course! So when the princess shows up at this point in the play, there really isn't anything indicating that they are in a disguise.
1: Having a female identifying actor Caitlin, read the part of the princess, highlights the lesbian potential of the relationship between Lady Happy and the princess. Yeah, yeah. Sophia and Caitlin did a great job of highlighting a budding relationship between Lady Happy and the princess. Because we weren't worried about what the princess looked like, we could focus on the language and the nuance of their
3: relationship.
2: Now, let's listen to another reading of the same scene. This time with Sophia Baratta as Lady Happy and Johnny Williams III, a male-identifying actor as the Princess.
4: Madam, your highness has done me much honor to come from a splendid court to a retired convent.
5: Sweet Lady Happy, there are many that have quit their crowns and power for a cloister of restraint. Then, well, may I quit a court of troubles for a convent of pleasure. But the greatest pleasure I could receive were to have your friendship.
4: I should be ungrateful. Should I not be not only your friend, but humble servant?
5: I desire you would be my mistress, and I your servant. And upon this agreement of friendship, I desire you will grant me one request?
4: Anything that is in my power to grant.
5: Why then? I, observing in your several recreations, some of your ladies do accouster themselves in masculine habits and act lover's parts. I desire you will give me leave to be sometimes so accoustered and act the part of your loving servant.
4: I shall never desire to have any other loving servant than yourself
5: nor I any loving mistress than yourself.
4: More innocent lovers never can there be than my most princely lover. That's a she.
5: Nor never convent did such pleasures give where lovers with their mistresses may live.
1: That was such a great reading. Yeah, and... Johnny did a great job of embodying the masculinity that Madame Mediator references when discussing the princess. I absolutely agree. But I wonder, does that give away the surprise ending of the prince identity too soon? That's a
2: great question. I think, you know, we're we're given this luxury by just listening to this scene um, versus seeing it on the stage.
1: Exactly. There's so many things you don't have to consider in a reading that's just auditory. But yes, bodies in space watching with your eyes tells a different story.
2: If we've gleaned anything from these readings, it isn't that there's one version of this that's better than the other. Casting is a choice and these choices uh, will tell a story. Directors can and should take this into consideration when casting their
1: productions of Convent of Pleasures. Definitely. Most of this play celebrates female-female friendships romantic relationships, and neurotic bonds. The convent, unlike the patriarchal world outside of the convent, prioritizes joy, pleasure, and the genuine interests of women. Some of these interests resonate with modern queer audiences due to their possibility of queer representation. I decided to look at the convent of pleasure through the lens of queer theory. At the start of the play, Madam Mediator and Lady Happy's male suitors assume that Lady Happy will want to marry a man. This is an example of what we now call compulsory heterosexuality. This term describes the pressure that people feel to be heterosexual based on the opinions of their families, employers, schools, and other aspects of society. It then surprises the suitors when Lady Happy decides to separate herself from men and form a convent with only single or widowed women allowed to live or work there. By creating a same-sex environment, Lady Happy is prioritizing homosocial bonding, which is bonding between people of the same gender identity. This can be seen as a text-based hint at queer relations because it values same-sex emotional bonds over opposite-sex ones. Cavendish takes this a step further by hinting at homoeroticism, which is another name for same-sex attraction. Homoeroticism does not need to necessarily be sexual. Esther Perel defines eroticism as not necessarily sex but, quote, the qualities of vitality curiosity and spontaneity that make us feel alive. End quote. When discussing the creation of the Convent of Pleasure with Madame Mediator, Lady Happy makes it clear that she does not plan to live without pleasure. Words or names with the root pleasure appear 67 times in the Convent of Pleasure. Wow.
2: Which is only 30
1: pages. That is so many
2: times. That's so many times. <laughs>
1: Even though they won't live among men, Lady Happy intends for the women in her convent to experience as much pleasure as possible. When reading this section through a queer lens, that seems to imply same-sex romanticism and eroticism. When the princess is revealed as the prince in disguise, Lady Happy does not break up with them. But this does not necessarily mean that they are bound for a happily ever after their relationship will certainly change based on their new dynamic. The reveal changes the relationship itself, much like the act of queer people coming out changes the nature of their relationship to everyone who they come out to. This is similar to an idea expressed in Sawyer Kemp's Shakespearean Transition, Pedagogies of Transgender Justice and Performance. This conclusion with Lady Happy Marrying a Man even though she thought she was falling in love with a woman, feels like modern queerbaiting. Queerbaiting in pop culture nowadays is when shows tempt queer audiences with possible romantic representation, only to have it not. They either wind up as friends, or it doesn't delve deeply enough into their relationship. When Madison and I discussed portrayals of the princess by a male identifying actor, We wondered about the possible reasons behind the prince joining the convent, which are never made explicitly clear. This contrasts Lady Happy's other suitors, who overtly say that they want to bring about the destruction of the convent. I like to think that the prince's ambiguous opinion of the convent suggests an openness to supporting queer communities. We don't really know how the princess sees their gender, since the prince seems to be equally comfortable in their identity as the prince or the princess, their gender identity might be ambiguous. This leads me to hope that some of the gender and sexual freedom of their queer-seeming relationship with Lady Happy will continue in their marriage. Not knowing the exact expectations of their marital relationship, I hope that their relationship will remain queer outside of the combat as well.
2: That was great, Kara. Thank you for sharing. My pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> well, it looks like we're out of time. Thank you for joining us in our edition of Writ in the Margins podcast. We hope that you enjoyed our exploration of identity in Margaret Cavendish's The Convent of Pleasure.
1: Thank you to our dramaturgy professor, Molly, for providing relevant readings and suggestions for expanding our investigation further. Thank you to the scholars who
2: wrote the articles, books, and websites that aided our research. Sarah Ahmed, Sawyer Kemp, Lois Tyson, and the scholars at the Digital Cavendish
1: Project. Thank you to Sophia Barada, Caitlin Spurgeon, and Johnny Williams III for bringing the play to life with their fantastic readings from Act Three, Scene One. Thank you for taking this journey through the dramaturgical
2: aspects of the Convent of Pleasure with us. We hope that this inspires lively discussions and interest in Cavendish's work and lights a dramaturgical spark of questioning what is being said and what is possible.
1: Again, I'm Kara Hankard. And I'm Madison Rudolph.
2: Bye! Bye!
0: Thanks so much for listening to Written the Margins. On behalf of my awesome students, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. All opinions shared on this podcast belong to episode hosts and their special guests, and do not necessarily reflect the positions of our places of work and study. Please check out our show website for more resources, including show notes and transcripts. Now don't be a dramaturgy. Listen to another episode.